Shalom. Thank you for listening to this week's message from Emmaus Road Fellowship, where we encounter Yeshua in the scriptures. Check out our website at walkingemmausroad.org, where you'll find additional teachings and information on visiting us in Kingwood, Texas. If you've been blessed by this ministry, please consider giving to support Emmaus Road's mission of spreading the good news of the kingdom. May God grant you shalom in the name of Yeshua, our Messiah. Amen. All right, so our portion this week is Chaye Sarah, which is the life of Sarah. And I want to start in Romans 12, verses 1 through 2. Therefore, I urge you, brethren, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies a living and holy sacrifice, well-pleasing to God, which is your spiritual service of worship. And do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind, so that you may prove what the will of God is, that which is good and well-pleasing and perfect. So, within this, uh, within this text, I chose it because it's the aspect of turning from what, uh, what we are by nature and can trans- being transformed into who God has created us to be and calls us to be. And within this text, I, I changed one of the words. I don't know if you recognize it, but there's one where it says to present your bodies a living and holy sacrifice acceptable to God. And then the same word at the end that says you may prove the will of God, that which is good and acceptable and perfect. Okay, that's the most common translation that I've seen is acceptable. But when you look at the Greek word, it it's, can also mean well-pleasing. Okay, and so I was thinking about the meaning of words and how our perception of words might change kind of uh, how we interpret a verse or how, what, what we think about what God thinks of us. And so if we make ourselves into a living sacrifice to God, is it acceptable to God? Well, yes. Is it well-pleasing to God? Yes. Would you rather be acceptable or well-pleasing? Because, <laughs> you know, it could be... <laughs> well, you'd rather be well-pleasing, you know? And that's what I think the Lord looks at us and sees, is not just, uh, eh, that's acceptable, but rather, no, I'm well-pleased with you coming to seek after me. I'm well-pleased with you proving what my will is and accomplishing the work that he's laid out before us. So I thought about it in, in the parable of the talents, you know, when Yeshua was talking in Matthew 25, it, after a, one of the people was given two talents and he comes back and he says, look, I, I took the two talents you gave me and I've done two more. You know, I've got two more. And he says, well done, good and faithful servant. Enter into the joy of your master. That's great. That's what we want to hear, right? I would love to hear when my job is done, well done, good and faithful servant, as opposed to the, hmm, okay, well, I guess I can't expect too much. That's acceptable for a slave. Come on in. <laughs> it's like, well, so anyway, I'm not saying that the word translation of acceptable is a bad thing. I'm just saying I don't know that it re- reflects the joy that God takes in us when we walk according to his ways and seek to honor him with our lives. So I see him being well-pleased and saying, enter into my joy, right? So anyway, so that's why I chose that. And uh, there's, there's some other things, too. Like the meanings of words change through time. Um, 
and I don't know completely the story around this one. I know there's parts of it. Um, I know that, like, if you think about a child who is stubborn, right? You might call that child strong-willed. You say, well, that's a strong-willed child right there. They're going to do what they want to do. But I don't believe the definition of strong-willed was always looked at that way. In the past, actually, in what what I think of the true definition of strong-willed is being strong in doing what you know is right and good, as opposed to what your flesh or or what you want to do, right? So a strong-willed child, when speaking of a stubborn child, might help with their self-esteem, but it's going to do little to say, hey, you know what, the strength of your will ought to be directed towards good things. Does that make sense? So in the past, strong-willed would have been strength to do what is right. And that's what we want to do, is we want to have strength to do what is right. And the way that we do that is through renewing our minds and then living out our lives as an offering unto the Lord. So we submit to our Father's will, and we do His works in that, and then we're strong in it, such that we can be strong-willed children in a good way. So, um, since I talk about movies sometimes, let's go ahead and do another one. Uh, Maybe we'll make it through a whole catalog at some point. But okay, so today we'll talk about The Princess Bride. Yeah, okay, some people like The Princess Bride. Yeah, it's like, where is your inspiration? See, we can get inspiration from the Lord in all kinds of ways, right? And it's just, are we going to listen, right? It doesn't always have to come from the Bible, but it doesn't need to align with the Bible. (laughs) All right, so within The Princess Bride, I won't tell you the whole story. You can watch it yourself. But there's a child, and he's sick, and his grandpa comes to him to, to read him a story like his grandpa did for him when he was a child and was sick. So he comes to his son, he's like, I want to read you a book. And the kid's like, eh, you know, reading. And, oh, is there going to be kissing in it? No, this doesn't sound good. You know, but his, his grandpa's like, well, I'm, I'm going to read you the story. So he starts reading the story. And within this story, it's a, there's a, a woman who is a landowner, and she has a slave boy who she'll always call to come in and do tasks. And he always replies, um, as you wish. It's as simple as you wish is all he ever says. And no matter how menial the task or how difficult it is, his words to her are always as you wish. And in the story, they say that at some point it became understood that every time he was saying as you wish, he was really saying, I love you. Right? And so when we think about that, when we're called to do a task by the Lord, when he has called us to do his will and walk according to his ways, what's our response? Is it, as you wish, I love you, right? That's where we want to be. We want to be operating out of a place of love and saying, yes, Lord, as you wish, as you've called, I will go and I will do. That's our heart's desire. And so within this portion this week, we have some examples of people who were setting aside their own desire and going and doing the will of the Lord. So we see this, um, well, in this portion, we don't see Yeshua, but we see Yeshua in the portion, right? Because he's not in Genesis, but he is in Genesis. So, uh, but so we'll, we'll talk about an example of Yeshua doing the Father's will, Eleazar, 
and Rebecca. And we'll talk about Isaac as well, even though um, we'll be referring back to last week's portion when we do that. Okay, so let's go to John 4, verses 3 to 14. That was our gospel reading for this week. The scripture says, He left Judea and went away again into Galilee, and he had to pass through Samaria. So he came to a city of Samaria called Sychar, and near the parcel of ground that Jacob gave to his son Joseph, and Jacob's well was there. So Yeshua, being wearied from his journey, was sitting thus by the well, and when it was about the sixth hour, there came a woman of Samaria to draw water. Yeshua said to her, Give me a drink, for his disciples had gone away into the city to buy food. Therefore the Samaritan woman said to him, How is it that you, being a Jew, ask me for a drink, since I am a Samaritan woman? For Jews have no dealings with Samaritans. Yeshua answered and said to her, If you knew the gift of God, and who it is who says to you, Give me a drink, you would have asked him, and he would have given you living water. She said to him, Sir, you have nothing to draw with, and the well is deep. Where then do you get that living water? You are not greater than our father Jacob, are you, who gave us the well and drank of it himself and his sons and his cattle? Yeshua answered and said to her, Everyone who drinks of this water will thirst again, but whoever drinks of the water that I give him shall never thirst. But the water that I will give him will become in him a well of water springing up to eternal life. So then the text goes on to recount how Yeshua reveals himself to her as the Messiah. She recognizes him as a prophet because he calls out things in her life that no one should have known. And then they have a discussion about, well, who really is the people of God? And Yeshua's answer is the Jews are the people of God. She says, all right, we're going to have to agree to disagree. We're going to wait for the Messiah to come and he'll tell us who's really the people of God. And Yeshua answers, you know, the person who speaks to you, that's me. You know, I am the Messiah, right? So then picking back up in verse 31 of John 4. The scripture says, Meanwhile, the disciples were urging him, saying, Rabbi, eat. But he said to them, I have food to eat that you do not know about. So the disciples were saying to one another, No one brought him anything to eat, did he? And Yeshua said to them, My food is to do the will of him who sent me and to accomplish his work. That phrase right there strikes me. My food is to do the will of him who sent me and to accomplish his work. Right? So in this passage, we have several things. We have physical needs and we have spiritual needs. Everybody knows that physical needs, water and food, are essential to life. Right? So here Yeshua's been on a journey. He's hot and tired. He's sitting by a well. Wants water. He's also hungry. He could use food, right? But the primary needs at the moment are the spiritual needs, okay? The spiritual needs being that he can provide this living water, and then also, too, that he can receive nourishment, a spiritual nourishment from the Lord as he carries out God's will. So within this water, Symbolically can be Torah, Revelation, and the Spirit, forms of refreshment for our spirit. And then the food can be thought of as the obedience to the God, right? And the nourishment that we receive from 
our service unto him. So the idea here is that Yeshua, you know, we, we know that he came to do the Father's will in all things. And that's what he did. He spoke according to God's will, according to his word. And he went where God told him to go and he did what God told him to do. He was a faithful servant to the end. And in the end, even before the end, he hears, well done, my good and faithful servant. You know, this is my son in whom I delight. Now, so Yeshua is our ultimate example of what the one who has renewed his mind, who has conformed himself to the image, well, he is the image of God, but he's conformed himself in every aspect by submitting to God and to doing his will, giving us, again, the perfect example. Now, going on from there, let's, let's go back to our portion. We're, we're going to read from Genesis 24 about two others who were, were faithful. Now Abraham was old, well advanced in years, and the Lord had blessed Abraham in all things. And Abraham said to his servant, the, to his servant, the oldest of his household, who had charge of all that he had, put your hand under my thigh that I may make you swear by the Lord, the God of heaven and the God of earth, that you will not take a wife for my son from the daughters of the Canaanites among whom I dwell, but will go to my country and to my kindred and take a wife for my son Isaac. The servant said to him, Perhaps the woman may not be willing to follow me to this land. Must I then take your son back to the land from which you came? Abraham said to him, See to it that you do not take my son back there. The Lord, the God of heaven, who took me from my father's house and from the land of my kindred, and who spoke to me and swore to me, To your offspring I will give this land, he will send his angel before you, and you shall take a wife for my son from there. But if the woman is not willing to follow you, then you will be free from this oath of mine. Only you must not take my son back there. So the servant put his hand under the thigh of Abraham, his master, and swore to him concerning this matter. Then the servant took ten of his master's camels and departed, taking all sorts of choice gifts from his master. And he arose and went to Mesopotamia, to the city of Nahor. And he made the camels kneel down outside the city by the well of water at the time of evening the time when women go out to, to draw water. And he said, O Lord, God of my master Abraham, please grant me success today and show steadfast love to my master Abraham. Behold, I am standing by the spring of water and the daughters of the men of the city are coming out to draw water. Let the young woman to whom I shall say, please let down your jar that I may drink and who shall say drink and I will water your camels. Let her be the one whom you have appointed for your servant Isaac. By this I shall know that you have shown steadfast love to my master. Before he had finished speaking, behold, Rebekah, who was born to Bethuel, the son of Milcha, the wife of Nahor, Abraham's brother, came out with her water, with her water jar on her shoulder. The young woman was very attractive in appearance, a maiden whom no man had known. She went down to the spring and filled her jar and came up. Then the servant ran to meet her and said, Please give me a little water to drink from your jar. She said, Drink, my lord. And she quickly let down her jar upon her hand and gave him a drink. When she had finished giving him a drink, she said, I will draw water for your camels also until they have finished drinking. So she quickly emptied her jar into the trough and ran again to the well to draw water. And she drew for all his camels. The man gazed at her in, silent, in silence to learn whether the Lord had prospered his journey or not. 
When the camels had finished drinking, the man took a gold ring weighing a half shekel and two bracelets for her arms weighing ten gold shekels and said, Please tell me whose daughter you are. Is there room in your father's house for us to spend the night? She said to him, I am the daughter of Bethuel, the son of Milcha, whom she bore to Nahor. She, she added, We have plenty of both straw and fodder and room to spend the night. The man bowed his head and worshipped the Lord and said, Blessed be the Lord, the God of my master Abraham, who has not forsaken his steadfast love and his faithfulness toward my master. As for me, the Lord has led me in the way to the house of my master's kinsmen. So within this story, we see, we see Eliezer's success and we see the character of Rebekah. Now, I say this is Eliezer, right? But in the text, did you hear the name Eliezer? No, Eliezer is mentioned one time by name in the scripture back in Genesis 15 when God is telling Abram at that time that he will be a, he will be a great nation. And, and Abraham mentions Eliezer as the one who would inherit him. But God says, no, that one will not inherit you. But Eliezer was the one who is at the highest position in Abraham's house. And so when the scripture here talks of the one who is in charge of Abraham's household and the elder of his, of his house, it was uh, understood to be speaking of Eliezer. And that's what the interpretation is throughout Jewish history. But his name wasn't mentioned at all, which is interesting to me because this is such a critical juncture in the story, right? When Eliezer went at Abraham's direction and he performed his oath faithfully, he did it prayerfully, and he did it with joy, right? An excitement to see the work of God and how God had answered his prayer and was providing for his master. It was his joy to go and serve Abraham in this way. Now in Genesis 24, verse 32 and 33. After Eliezer had gone into the house, um, he was getting everything situated and the family was putting things in order. And the scripture says, So the man entered the house, Laban unloaded the camels, and he gave straw and feed to the camels and water to wash his feet and the feet of the men who were with him. But when food was set before him to eat, he said, I will not eat until I have told my business. And he said, speak on. It's interesting here, right? That Eliezer was going in and they offer him food to eat. And it's a need. But he said, no, my food is to do the will of the one who sent me. So his first priority was to do according to what his master Abraham had sent him to do. He said, I can eat later. This is the food that's really going to nourish. This is what needs to be done. I need to uphold my word that I've given my master. So Eliezer was selfless. And if you think about Eliezer, right, he was the, the top guy in Abram's house at one point, the one who was looking to be the heir. And then Ishmael's born. He's like, oh, just got passed over. And then Isaac's born. It's like, whoa, even further removed. <laughs> but yet he was able to look beyond that and say, it's not about that inheritance. It's about serving my master faithfully and continuing to do so throughout the years. I mean, a lot of time had gone by here since even the birth of Ishmael, and to this time, over 50 years, 
had gone by. Okay? But he was still serving Abraham faithfully. And then additionally, according to tradition, um, Eliezer had hoped that his daughter might marry Isaac. Interestingly enough. And, and this is derived from a reading of Eliezer's recounting of the story to Laban and, and Rebekah because some of the words that he uses to recount the story are different than the words that were used in the first telling. Like when he was given the instruction to go from Abraham, the words were different, and the sages said, well, why are these words different? And why is this word written defectively? Uh, written defectively means that a certain letter is left out from time to time. Usually it has to do with uh, vowels, vav, and, and uh, or not, with vav and yod, which can be used as vowels. And uh, so within that, they looked at it and said, well, what is the alternate meaning behind these words and what might be implied here? And so they said that when he was retelling his story, he admitted that subconsciously he almost had hoped that he would be unsuccessful in his mission to some degree because he's like, well, he said if I don't bring back a, a bride, then I'm absolved of my obligation, and then my daughter could be still in line to marry Isaac, right? This could be a good thing. But he was able to, again, set that aside and say, it's not my will be done, but my master's will be done, right? And then, and then when, he, when he sees Rebecca is the answer, his joy reflects his great desire to see good for his master and for Isaac, so I love that. It's a, yeah, it's a, it's a selfless love that he was offering up. And then what about Rebecca? Did she do the will of the Father? Right. Now with the story of the watering the camels. Okay, so it's one thing to be, have already got your water and to be going back and have someone ask you for a drink. And it's a little bit of a hassle probably to bring the water jug down and giving them a drink. But that's a whole other thing to say, I'm going to water your camels. Because, what's that? Until not right, until they're not thirsty. Okay, so the estimates, um, I had it written down somewhere, but the estimates were like 100 to 150 gallons of water, okay, that she was going to draw and water the camels. Because <laughs> there were 10 camels. So... Yeah, and, and to do it with vigor and to actually just willingly do it. Yeah, I, I have to believe that that was the spirit that prompted her. Because <laughs> I doubt it was just in her naturally. But with the prompting came the response, right? So yeah, she, she was prompted by the spirit and she did it. Um, other aspects, um, well, within what was going on, you know, Rebecca, she had to choose to leave her family, to leave her land, and to go to a new land for a new inheritance. So it sounds a lot like kind of what Abraham had to do at one point. Not knowing where he's going, she's like, so this guy Isaac, I don't really know much about him, you know, except, okay, we're related, but she was still willing to say, okay, I'm going to go and do that. That was great faith on her part, to lay down uh, what, she had, what she had valued before and move into something new. Okay, so now we're going to break over back to Isaac. Okay, Isaac. Yeah, 
No, yeah, she didn't have much time to count the cost. Mm-hmm. You're right, it, it, was a, it was a quick thing. Yeah, yeah. There wasn't there wasn't time because Eliezer was desiring to go back quickly, and not wait around for ten months or a year as uh, Laban and his mother had requested. So now we're going to back up and we're going to look at Isaac. Right. Last week we talked about the binding of Isaac and how he was willing to offer or to allow himself to be offered up as a sacrifice at the will of his father, who was also acting out of his, whose father, Abraham, was acting out of his desire to do God's will. So each of them doing the will of their father. Now, what happens, so Isaac had willingly allowed himself to be tied up on the altar. Abraham was willing to sacrifice him. The angel of the Lord stopped him. And then what happens to Isaac after he does the will of his father? Okay. Now, if we recall back to last week, Abraham tells his two servants, y'all stay here. Myself and the boy, we're going to go and we're going to offer and then we're going to return to you. But in Genesis twenty-two nineteen, after the binding of Isaac, The scripture says, So Abraham returned to his young men, and they arose and went together to Beersheba, where Abraham lived at Beersheba. Okay? So Abraham returned to his young men. And now let's go forward to verse 20. Now it came about after these things that it was told to Abraham, Behold, Milcah has has borne children to your brother Nahor. So Abraham hears about his relatives. And then let's jump forward to Genesis 23, 2. Sarah died in Kiriath Arba, that is Hebron, in the land of Canaan. And Abraham went in to mourn for Sarah and to weep for her. Now let's go to Genesis 23, 19. After this, Abraham buried Sarah, his wife, in the cave of the field at Machpelah, facing Mamre, that that is Hebron, in the land of Canaan. So Abraham buried Sarah. And then in Genesis 24, 2, we saw that Abraham sent Eliezer to find a wife for his son. Do you notice anything strange? Like, is anything missing in the story? Yeah, Isaac. Isaac is curiously missing from the entire story that's going on after the binding. Okay, so do you ever get the feeling that you've forgotten something? You know, like, you're getting ready to leave the house, and you think, oh, did I leave leave the stove on? Or did I remember to get my, my phone? You know, things like that. You know, at some point in this time, you, Abraham might have stopped and said, wait, did I leave Isaac on the altar? <laughs> no, but, <laughs> okay, good one, right? But uh, hey, I got some laughs, even if you can't hear it on the, on the camera. So, <laughs> um, <laughs> but, uh, but yeah, so where is Isaac? He's curiously absent from the story even in parts when you know he absolutely should have been there, right? On the way up to Mount Moriah for the, the binding, the scripture says over and over that they went together. They went as one. And then Abraham says, we're going to come back as one. But then the scripture only says Abraham comes back. And then Sarah dies, but the scripture doesn't say that Isaac went to her funeral. I mean, 
by all means, you would expect him to be at his mother's funeral. And so there's the aspect that Isaac disappeared from the storyline was troubling, or at least caused questions to be raised among the, the sages. And so they said, well, why is Isaac missing from the story? And so there's a few different traditions for explaining where was Isaac during this time. And generally speaking, it's thought that there was a three-year period of Isaac being gone and away. One of, the, one of the stories, though it may not be the most common one of all, was that Isaac had been in Gan Eden, or had been in paradise for three years, interestingly enough. Yeah, paradise, right? And Gan Eden in paradise is what we often think of as heaven. Okay? So that's an interesting, interesting thought if we think about Isaac after the offering on Mount Moriah, then disappears in paradise for a number of years before he comes back, right? So speaking of the coming back, let's go to Genesis 24, verse 58. So back to Eliezer meeting with Laban and the family. They said, then they called Rebekah and said to her, will you go with this man? And she said, I will go. Thus they sent away their sister Rebekah and her nurse with Abraham's servant and his men. They blessed Rebekah and said to her, May you, our sister, become thousands of ten thousands, and may your descendants possess the gate of those who hate them. Then Rebekah arose with her maids, and they mounted the camels and followed the man. So the servant took Rebekah and departed. Now Isaac had, now Isaac had come from going to Be'er Lachai Roy, for he was living in the Negev. Isaac went out to meditate in the field toward evening. And he lifted up his eyes and looked, and behold, camels were coming. Rebekah lifted up her eyes, and when she saw Isaac, she dismounted from the camel. And she said to the servant, Who is that man walking in the field to meet us? And the servant said, He is my master. Then she took her veil and covered herself. The servant told Isaac all the things that he had done. Then Isaac brought her into his mother Sarah's tent, and he took Rebekah, and she became his wife, and he loved her. Thus Isaac was comforted after his mother's death. Okay, so Isaac, where had he been? The scripture says that he had gone to Be'er Lachai Roi, okay? And that is the place where Hagar had been in the wilderness. If you recall back when Hagar had first gotten pregnant, uh, she was sent out of Abraham's home because she had been disrespectful towards Sarah. And when she was in the wilderness, actually, wait, no, wait, this was, when she was sent out there, that was actually after um, Ishmael was already alive. Sorry, excuse me, getting the story wrong. So correction, she was, this is when she was sent out because the slave woman's daughter would not inherit with Sarah's son, who was the chosen seed. So she goes out in the, in the wilderness, and it looks like she and the boy are going to die. And that's when God appears, or an angel appears, and says, no, you know, you're going to be okay, and shows a well where she can get water. And so that place was called Be'er Lachai Ro'i, which means the well of the living one appearing to me. The well of the living one appearing to me. That's where Isaac had gone, and from where he came, 
he came up from at the time that Rebekah was approaching. Right? And so Isaac is a type of our Messiah. He's a type of Yeshua. And so if we kind of string this story together and we see, we see a parallel to what has happened and is happening with Yeshua. Right? Because we see that Isaac offered up. After his being offered up, he disappears. Potentially, or at least according to, according to a, a traditional story, uh, that he, in some form or fashion, was thought to have potentially been in paradise, right? Well, and then coming back at a time to meet his bride. So if you think about Yeshua, Yeshua being offered up, he dies, is resurrected, he ascends to heaven, where he has been hidden away for a, for a time, but there's a day coming when he will return to meet his bride who is being brought to him. Okay? And who brings the bride to him but the Spirit? Right? Because, um, well, the, the Spirit brings us to him, right? The Spirit is sent from the Father to us to lead us into all truth, to bring transformation in our spirit and in our mind and to show us what the good way is, to recall to our mind what God has commanded so that we can walk in it. And in this, we're being conformed into the image of Yeshua and being made a bride that is spot, without spot or wrinkle such that we're ready at the time that the Messiah comes. So we're going out to meet him at the time that the well of the living one is appearing to us, coming from heaven, right? So there's a really neat parallel that's going on there that's got multiple layers and with Eliezer specifically, okay, the name Eliezer means God is my help or God is my helper, okay? And so when Yeshua talks about it being better that he go away, because when he goes away, the Father will send the helper in his name to lead us into all truth, right? So... <laughs> You've got, you've got the story, right? All built right there into the story with Abraham and Eliezer, Rebekah and Isaac. So after the offering of the son of the promised seed, the father sends the helper to go out and to find a bride who is of the, fa of the father's family, right? Who is of the son's family to prepare them or to prepare her, say, will you go? Will you leave your land and your relatives and go to the place that I will show you to meet the one who offered himself up such that you might be a bride? Yeah. It's a cool story. And every person within the story was faithful and true and did according to their master's will at all these steps along the way, setting aside whatever it was that they had, whatever that they held on to, and said, I'm going to be strong-willed according to your will, and I'm going to say as you wish, because I love you. And then you see the power and the effect, the result of those actions. 
Because when you take a look here at the end, we, we read about how Isaac lifted his eyes and he saw, and Rebekah lifted her eyes and saw. Right? It harkens back to Abraham when he was walking with Isaac, and he lifted up his eyes and he saw the mountain, and he saw the divine presence over Mount Moriah, such that he would know that was the place God had chosen for the offering to be made. And so he could see what would the, the future of Jerusalem and God's presence, his divine presence resting. And so Isaac looks and he sees his bride and he sees the divine presence resting on her. The bride looks and sees Isaac and sees the divine presence resting on him. Right? It's God in all of it working and moving within the people to reveal his, to reveal his will and to reveal really the age to come. Because, you know, in the scriptures where we read that he took Sarah in, or he took Rebecca into Sarah's tent and they were wed and, um, and that he was consoled. Now, according to, to tradition, when he brought, okay, so there were several things that happened within Sarah's tent during her life. There was a lamp that burned in her tent from one Sabbath to the next. Her dough was always blessed. And the cloud hung over her tent, or the divine presence rested over her tent. But all that stopped after her death. And when Isaac took Rebekah and brought her into the tent, all those miracles resumed. And it was a testimony to Isaac that, yes, she is the chosen one, the one who is prepared for him. Right? There's restoration that was taking place when the bride was brought in, out of exile, outside the land, right? Rebecca was outside the land. She was brought in to the land, right? Just like what the end of age, end of the ages, right? The exile is overturned and the, the children of Israel are returned to the land. A bride made ready for the groom. Hmm. So, if you think about the age to come and thinking of the divine presence resting in Jerusalem, in the scriptures it talks about how the lamb is the lamp. You know, there's the new Jerusalem, no temple in it. The lamb is the lamp. And there is the divine presence there. And God's spreading out his canopy over all of Jerusalem. All likened unto Sarah's tent as well. So a lot of parallels, a lot of imagery. And one of the keys within this all is it couldn't have happened without the willingness of the bride who when Eliezer came to her said, give me a drink. That first invitation that didn't in itself require all that much, but there was a willingness and a response of, yes, I'll do that. And I'll even go above and beyond because of her character, and because of her willingness to hear and obey. So Eliezer got to observe her apart from all of her normal settings. You know, she wasn't around her family at this time. She was by the well. She could have said, you're a stranger, stranger danger. Uh, and, you know, she could have, you know, ran and been like, I'm not, not going to deal with this. No one will ever know, Right? But her character was such that she was willing to say yes and to do it. And so she went above and beyond. She showed great kindness at great cost 
to herself. And Leslie, you mentioned just a minute ago about did she really count the cost before she went, you know? It seems like she was ready to serve in whatever capacity was laid before her. And, you know, maybe she didn't fully count the cost. You know, maybe there was an aspect of adventure that was kind of inspiring her. But ultimately, it was like, well, God is in this. And he's chosen me. And he's called me. So I will go. And I will be faithful and I'll serve. And I will do according to the will of my Father. So within all this, you think about us, right? Wherever we were in life, (laughs) we were outside. But God sent the Spirit to call out to us, to draw us to Him, to stir within us the the understanding of our great need of a Redeemer, of a relationship with God who formed us. And then through His prompting, we repent and we come to know our Savior and we say, yes, Lord, I'll go and do as you you desire. I will conform my mind to your thoughts and I will submit my will to your will such that I can go and do and be who you've called me to do. And at the end of the days, we'll hear, well done, good and faithful servants, and we'll experience the pleasure of the Lord with whatever it is that he's given us to do, great or small. The, the call for us is to be faithful and to, to do it with an as you wish and an I love you, right, of, um, of that. Now, one way that the, the princess bride ends, so they get done with the whole story, they finish it, And the grandpa's getting ready to leave. And the little boy says, Grandpa, can you come back tomorrow and read me the story again? And the grandpa turns to him and he says, as you wish. Right? And what I love there is how his grandpa came to him at the very beginning and said, I want to give you something great. And I want to be in relationship with you. I want to show you the kindness that my grandfather showed me. And then he walks with his grandson through it and sees this grandson's heart change to be like, Grandpa, I want you to come back. This is really special. And oh, the joy that his grandfather had to feel in that moment to say, absolutely, I will walk with you and I will come back tomorrow. Let's keep it up. So that's, I see that as God's heart toward us, his desire, his great love, and all these great links that he's gone to for this redemption and to show us these stories of how he's cared and moved. So we bless the Lord in that. And um, Jared's going to come up here in just a moment to uh, share about the, the new month of Kislev. Um, but before we do that, did anybody have anything that you wanted to, to share? We're saying, um. I don't know when you, when you were talking about like looking up, you know, I, I was remembering when Abraham um, looked up and there was in the thicket like a, a ram mm-hmm. caught. It was just neat how when God's telling him to look up, there's like there's an answer, you know, like in that moment of like this despair or overwhelming, it's like look up, 
So just kind of like searching the scripture for all the times where he was called to look. Like, look up. Mm-hmm. It usually looks similar yeah. to that. To his provision, yeah. He's like, lift up your eyes and see the salvation of the Lord, his provision, his goodness. Amen. Yeah, if we get fixated on down here, yeah, despair. But lift up your eyes, for he's always with us. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, with Peter in the boat. He kept his eyes on Yeshua. He could walk on water. He didn't. Not so much walking on water. So, amen. Okay, anyone else? Okay. Let me say a quick prayer before Jared comes up. So, Lord, we love you and bless you. We give you thanks and praise for your goodness and your kindness that you draw us to you and that you've sent not only your son but your spirit to lead us in the way, and may we tune our hearts to yours, know your will, to seek your face. We bless you in the name of Yeshua. Amen. All right. So today we're going to go over a little bit of, um, as Chris said, Kislev. Um, Kislev is the ninth month of months, and it is the third month on the civil calendar. Um, the meaning uh, is trust and hope. Um, the blessings that usually occur during this month is sleep and dreams. Um, and we'll get into the, why it's also known as the month of dreams here in a little bit. Um, areas of healing that God is usually working on in this time of month is uh, trust issues with God. Um, to be able to just trust in him. Um, actions needed in response to those areas of healing is that just let your light shine wherever you are. Um, and so, and we'll get into light and why it is called the, um, there is light in this month of darkness. Uh, and the warfare, uh, spiritual warfare that we usually approach this month with is uh, we war against darkness from a place of rest. And rest, not really meaning you sleep because it's the month of dreams, you know, but rest and just knowing that God is in control and that when we give him the little bit that we do have, he's able to multiply that, empower us to move forward in what, is, um, what we are called to do. So this month is most known for the celebration of Hanukkah. Uh, but before that, we'll look into a couple other points. It is the month of dreams. So why is it considered the month of dreams? Uh, the weekly Torah portions for this month, starting next week, um, will contain more dreams than in any other month. So, um, spoiler alert, we're probably going to talk about Joseph. <clears throat> so, um, there are 10 dreams recorded in the Torah, all in Genesis. Nine of them will be discussed in the month of Kislev. Uh, dreams are just one of ways that God talks to us uh, so that it's a good time so we talk about sleep. And this is a good time where God is just a little bit more um, available in dreams. So if you are a dreamer, say, God, give me some dreams. Um, and so strategies. Uh, dreams can also be warnings to pray against um, or warnings to pray for or just whatever. Just have God give you wisdom with what dreams he's given you. Um, so beware you're going to start having some really cool dreams in the next month. Amen. It's also the month of darkness. 
Uh, Kislev is the darkest of the year. As you can figure out, the days are progressively getting shorter. The nights are getting longer. Uh, Kislev and Tevet are the longest, have the longest nights. Um, usually, the winter solstice will occur during like the last week of Kislev. Usually. Sometimes it's, it's not. But that last week of Kislev is Hanukkah. Um, but before we get there, I, there are five stories in the scriptures that happened during the month of Kislev. And I think it's really, really good to just review that, especially in this time and age right now with where we're at in season. There is Ezra 10, where there is the confession of improper marriages. There is Nehemiah 1, where Nehemiah prays for his people as he just feels that they are um, in distress. There's Jeremiah 36, where Baruch reads from a scroll that Jeremiah instructed him to write, and they are things that they needed to repent of. There is Haggai 2, where the Lord calls out the defiled nature of Israel at that time. And then there is Zechariah 7, where the Lord calls out Israel's fasting. As he says, uh, do you really fast for me? Says the Lord. So these themes during this month of Kislev is God calling his people to repent and to turn around. And it is an account for God is calling his people to righteousness, not just to repent and turn around, but there's always a reason to repent. It's to come back to him. So God is calling them out to righteousness because if unrighteousness goes unchecked and unchallenged, it eventually allows the darkness to have rule and reign over not only us, but our families, our land, and everything. So God calling us and bringing things to us to repent for is his mercy of saying, I want to turn things around. I'm asking you to repent, to call out, (laughs) and and, um, there's things I want to do, but I want to partner with you in it. I want you to be a part of this plan. Repent. Don't let righteousness go unchecked. So the story of Hanukkah. Um, And I got a lot of this information from this book, Light. It is the First Fruits of Zion book of Hanukkah. It's a great story. Uh, it's a great book. It's a great reference to read and to go through with your family. Um, it's got um, themes for every week, or every, every week, every day of the week uh, for Hanukkah. But Hanukkah starts on Kislev 25th, which is this year, it's Thursday night, December the 10th. And it goes for eight days, and it usually ends around Tevet 2 or 3. Kind of depends on how many days Kislev has that year. Um, It's the only celebration that actually spans into the next month. So therefore, there's always a new moon uh, during Hanukkah. Uh, Speaking of dark, the new moon, dark, it's it's also the festival of lights. So it is interesting. Hanukkah does mean dedication, and it is also called the festival of lights. And how great it is, like in the darkest part of the year, we get to celebrate with light. Um, God's way of saying, be a light in the darkness. Um, It's the story of Antiochus uh, and the abomination and desolation of the second temple. And it's told in the book of Maccabees. Um, Antiochus, and here's just give you some highlights, uh, invaded Jerusalem, attacked the Jewish people, vandalized the temple, looted everything from the temple, erected an idol on the altar and desecrated its holiness with the blood of swine. 
And not only that, Antiochus issued decrees that forbade circumcision, forbade Sabbath observances, forbade the kosher diet, and forbade the study of Torah. Basically did everything and anything to try to annihilate and get rid of the Jewish people. What better way to get rid of a people group and culture than to take away their ability to learn from the previous generation? Um, So if you were found doing any of these things, you were put to death. So that was, if you were doing it, they put you to death. So first of all, they put the fear of you to quit doing it. And then if you did do it, they killed you. Um, Just to, that's their insurance policy, I guess. So many Jews chose to comply. They saw this unrighteousness. They said, "Eh, I'll go ahead and I'll I'll just do that. So they feared their own life instead of, of the word of God. But a lot of Jews did not, such as Matiehu. Did I say that correctly? I don't know. Matiehu, sure. Yeah, sounds good. <laughs> All right. Who, along with his five sons, fled to the hills and the caves in the Judean wilderness. He eventually passed away. And then Judah, his son, took charge of a small group of people after his death. And then three years later, Judah and a small group of zealous Torah-observant Jews took on thousands of Seleucid army, and even though severely overmatched, they fought battle after battle until they took back Jerusalem. In reality, this is, you always hear of Hanukkah being the oil that stayed for eight nights after they rededicated. That's pretty an impressive miracle in and of itself, to see people that were frustrated, zealous for Torah, zealous for God's righteousness. It was being taken away. And for them, it was, it was better to, to fight to death to see it restored rather than let it see it continue. Um, let's see, once victory was had by the Jews, they immediately started the process of restoring the temple. And on the 25th of Kislev, exactly three years after the first swine had been sacrificed on the altar, Judah reinstated the daily burnt offerings. And the story is that they only had enough oil to keep the menorah lit for one day. It stayed lit for eight days. Um, And then the eight-day celebration also corresponded with the festival of Sukkot, um, which they just celebrated. I mean, why not have some more celebrations? I love it. Um, But uh, it is timely, I think, to... um, just to recognize that, uh, especially the story of Hanukkah, uh, of people that saw um, righteousness and un- well, unrighteousness just ruling and reigning and taking over. There's a time where you do just say enough's enough. We got to stand up for what's right and for what, is, what God is saying and what God has called us to do. Um, and so that is a big story of Hanukkah. Uh, and then you get to eat fried foods too. So, um, so, but that is uh, Kislev, and then I'll uh, say a prayer, and I'll hand it back to, um, to Chris. So, may it be your will, Lord our God and God of our fathers, that you renew for us a good month in our Lord Yeshua, the Messiah. Amen. Amen. Thank you, Jared. Yeah, the, the call to be a light in the darkness. Ah, so key. So, yeah, we need to continue in prayer continue uh, seeking righteousness in every dimension, not fearing, but just in trust going forward 
in God's in God's work and his in his will for us. Thank you very much, Jared. Thank you for joining us. If you enjoyed this message, please consider sharing it with a friend or family member and help us out by giving a review on iTunes or other podcast platform. Check out our website at walkingemmausroad.org for additional teachings and information about visiting Emmaus Road in Kingwood, Texas. Thank you.